How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone a chance to make sure they're in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we've gone through our study of Romans and as we become uh, more aware of all that we have in our spiritual life and all that's been provided for us and the distinctiveness of this of our spiritual life in this church age and the fact that we have uh, so many assets and we have the indwelling of the Spirit, we have been uh, baptized by the Spirit, so we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And all of these realities are unique to this dispensation. And Father, we're thankful that we have your word to tell us about these things, and we may, may we come to fully understand them and see them activated in our own spiritual life. Father, as we meet tonight, we know that there are people in this congregation, friends, family, that are traveling already for the uh, holidays. We pray that you keep them safe, watch over them. We also know that there are a number of folks who are suffering from physical and medical uh, ailments and maladies, some quite serious. We continue to pray for them and their families and for their testimony to your grace during their time of difficulty. Father, we pray that for each one of us that this might not be an academic study, but that it would be a study that pushes us, challenges us to continue to grow spiritually and to utilize this wonderful, wonderful reality that we have of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, filling us, and that we need to learn how to walk by the Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in Romans 8. Romans 8, and what we see here in Romans 8, starting in verse, uh, we'll start tonight picking up a little bit of review from verses 2 and 3. We're going to work our way down through uh, verse 11, I hope, this evening, uh, understanding that this is a spiritual life. Now, I think this is really important, to again, to review. If you just pick up your Bible and you just start reading Romans chapter 8, you might come to some rather unusual conclusions as to what Paul is talking about because you just jump into the middle of the uh, of, of what he is saying, jump into the middle of the letter. It's like coming home uh, in the evening, and it's about 7.15 or 7.30, and you turn on a murder mystery, police show, something like that, CSI, NCIS, and you're halfway through the show, and you have no idea what they're doing, and you turn it on, and you have to guess and figure out what they're trying to solve, the whole circumstances of the murder or whatever the, the issue is, and you just start guessing at it, and you know as well as I do that for probably the next 15 or 20 minutes, you're wrong because you don't know the context of those first 30 minutes. You're just guessing. And often that is how people approach the Bible when they're interpreting the Scripture. They don't understand the importance of context. And as we've studied so many times before, 
the three laws of Bible study, like the three laws of real estate, are location, location, location. But in Bible study, we call it context, context, and context. And as I've said before, when you take the uh, text out of the context, you're left with a con job. And that is often what happens in, in uh, many, many sermons and Bible teaching. You're just left with uh, somebody using a text as a pretext to get across whatever it is they want to teach. Romans 6, 7, and 8, as I've said probably to ad nauseum, is not about how to get justified, but how the justified person lives. Therefore, when we approach Romans 8, and some of the things that are said here, we have to understand that Paul is not talking about how to become a believer, how to become a Christian, how to be saved, how to be justified. He's talking about the Christian life. He's in that point where we've already understood what it means to become saved, to be justified, to become a Christian, and that's by faith alone in Christ alone. It's trusting in Jesus as the one who died on the cross for our sins. But what we have here is understanding how we are now to live. Uh, when we get into discussions and reading about, uh, for example, a verse like verse 9, uh, which talks about, but you are not in the flesh but in the spirit, uh, what is it, exactly does that mean when it talks about in verse 6 and verse 7 being that to be carnally minded is death? Well, is that being, uh, is that an unbeliever? Uh, sometimes when we read these words carnal versus spirit, we think of it in terms of unbeliever versus believer. But what this is talking about is the believers who are not walking by the spirit, if they're not, if their their life is not being energized and empowered by God the Holy Spirit, then the only other alternative is the sin nature. And the term flesh is a word that Paul frequently uses to refer to the sin nature. The word flesh, or the Greek word sarx, has several different meanings, as does the word spirit. So the word flesh can refer to the physical material substance of our physical corporeal body, or the flesh can refer to, uh, for example, the flesh of meat that we're eating. That word is used that way sometimes, or it can refer to uh, that which energizes the body, which is the sin nature. And it's interesting that Paul uses the term flesh and body and term that also the term body of sin as synonyms for sin and the sin nature. And that suggests very strongly that the location of the corruption of the, of Adam's original sin is not in the soul but in the body, and it's passed on through the DNA structure. Now, how that happens, I don't know. I think we make a mistake if we try to identify a biblical principle like that too closely with where modern science is in terms of its explanation of DNA and biology and cell structure and things like that, simply because in the next decade or two, that may change. But the truth of God's word doesn't change. So how it fits, we don't know. We don't have to know. All we see is this connection between the sin nature and the corporeal body, that it is through our physical flesh that the sin nature uh, works itself out, that manifests itself, and that the only 
solution to overcoming the, 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 the dictates of the sin nature is through the Holy Spirit. Now, while we're here in Romans 8, I want us to just hold your place here, and I want to turn to Galatians 5. The reason I'm going to Galatians is because Galatians 5 gives us one of the other two or three passages in Paul where we see this contrast between walking by the Spirit and living according to the the flesh or the sin nature. Now, for those of you who were here Tuesday night, you get to have a test. When did Paul write Galatians? Very good. First missionary journey. Very good. So that means this is the earliest stage in the first writing, the first epistle, the earliest writing. And when does he write Romans? Romans is at the end of the third missionary journey. Remember, first missionary journey, one epistle, Galatians. Second missionary journey, he writes to first and second Thessalonians. Third missionary journey, he writes first and second Corinthians and Romans. Fourth trip, which is not a missionary journey, but it's a trip to Rome. There were the four prison epistles. So Galatians is written in uh, somewhere around uh, probably 52 or 53, maybe a little bit earlier. It's very early in that, say, maybe 49 or 50, but it's very early. His uh, first trip is probably right around 49 to 50, so it's right after that. And he's addressing a problem that has come up in Galatians, and I think this is so important for us to understand understand the spiritual life. To me, Galatians is even more clear than, than Romans, but that's because of the structure of the epistle. The problem in Galatia was that the Galatian believers uh, had been uh, deceived by a group of Jews, maybe even Jewish believers, but completely distorted in their theology, who were loyal to the Mosaic law, who were following along behind uh, Paul and uh, Barnabas and uh, uh, they were coming up and saying, you know, that's this thing about trusting in Jesus and grace and all of that's just fine, but it's not really enough. You need to add the Mosaic Law into the mix. And they added the Mosaic Law into the mix to get saved, so it was a faith in Christ plus the law to be justified. That's the topic of the first two chapters in Galatians. And then the other thing that they taught was if you're going to really experience a spiritual life, then you have to also follow the law. So in Galatians 3, Paul changes from talking about the gospel of justification by faith alone. We have the very well-known verse in Galatians 2.20, or 2.16 rather, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even so, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now that's when he's reaching his conclusion, sort of the high point of his argument in those first two chapters, telling us that the topic there is justification. But when we get into chapter 3, he, he asks them the question. He, he immediately just blasts them and says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. 
The only thing I want to I want to learn from you is did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now notice that's the key question for the rest of the book. He says, did you receive the spirit by the works of the law? Or did you hear it by faith? By faith? When you received the spirit, when did you when do we receive the spirit? At the instant of salvation. At the instant of salvation, there are a number of things that God does to us that we don't experience, but there are spiritual realities that are part of the transformation into being a new creature in Christ. And one of those is that God, the Holy Spirit, indwells us. We'll look at that a little later on in detail. So we receive the Spirit at that instant of salvation. Now, did that happen by obeying the law, is what Paul's saying, or did that happen uh, by just simply believing in the gospel? Well, the answer is hearing of faith. And then he goes on to state the question in a little different way, and he says, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, the starting point of the Christian life, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we begin by the Holy Spirit, regeneration. He said, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? So there are three key words that he uses there, spirit, perfect, and flesh. Spirit referring to the Holy Spirit, perfect is the Greek verb uh, teleao, meaning to be brought to completion or brought to maturity. It's not the idea of perfection in the sense of flawlessness, but the idea of being brought to the fullness of uh, or completion of what you were intended to be. So does it, are you, do you begin with the Spirit and are now being made perfect by the flesh? Now, Paul doesn't talk about this or answer that question right away. In modern classrooms, Paul would get an F in pedagogy. Since it's by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I guess that means the Holy Spirit flunks the class. Because he doesn't give you all the nice little illustrations. In fact, he goes a long way around the barn to answer the question. And he takes us back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, Verse 6, in verse 6 of Galatians 3, says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as uh, for righteousness. And then he goes on from there talking about Abraham, talking about then Moses and the law, and then he goes into the purpose of the law in the last part of chapter 3, chapter 4. He, uh, at the end of chapter 3, rather, he talks about the baptism by the Holy Spirit, which we've seen is foundational for Paul's understanding of the spiritual life. And then in chapter 4, he, he talks about uh, uh, what happens when we get adopted into the royal family of God. And then in chapter 5, he gets to where he's talking about the fact that we are, have freedom in Christ. And all of that takes us to verse 13 of chapter of chapter 5, and there he says, uh, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Not on, You only do not use liberty as opportunity for the flesh. And what's that? That's the sin nature. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the sin nature to express itself. But instead, strong contrast, through love serve one another. That's the primary command here governing the rest of the, the last portion of the, of the epistle that through love we're to serve one another. 
And then he's going to explain why that's so important in verse 14. He says, for all the law, that's the Mosaic law, the ultimate standard of God, he says, all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's really interesting because he's nailing down the fact that that ultimately maturity for the Christian is demonstrated and exhibited in love for one another. And in contrast, he says, if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. And Christians are probably the only army in the world that loves to shoot its wounded. And that's verse 15. So now Paul is going to, starting in 16, he's going to explain how in the world we can love one another. Because we all know that we're not very lovable a lot of the time. And there are a lot of Christians we know that aren't very lovable either, and we really don't want to be around them very much either. But we're still commanded to love them, and it's not just loving them from afar. It's loving them up close. So how do we do that? Well, you can't do it in the power of the flesh. You can only do it through the Holy Spirit. So he says, I say then, walk in the Spirit. This is verse 16. Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And because we've gone through this many, verse many times in the past, you should have three words circled in verse 16. Spirit, fulfill, and flesh. The same words that were used just a couple of pages back in Galatians 3, 3. Same words. What does that tell us? Now he answers the question. He asks the question, raises the issue in Galatians 3, 3, and he lays all this groundwork in chapters 3, 4, and 5, so that now we ought to be able to understand the answer. And his command is walk by means of the Spirit. It's the end plus the instrumental use of Spirit as the means for facilitating the spiritual life. And you shall not fulfill or bring to completion the lust of the flesh. Now, in the, in the Greek grammar of this verse, there is a strong double negative stated plus a subjunctive mood in the verb. Now, all that, that what that means is that you can say no, you can say really no, and you can say absolutely not impossible. Now, in English, if you double up negatives, they cancel out each other, but not in Greek. And so the strongest way to say or to negate something is to use both negatives, u and me, in Greek, with a subjunctive voice mood, and it has the idea it's impossible to do something. You will not be able to do something. It can't be said any stronger. So what Paul is saying is walk in the Spirit, and as long as you're walking by the Spirit, it will be impossible to bring to completion the lust of the flesh. Now, a lot of people say, well, how would that be? If I'm in fellowship, how could I sin? Because you stop walking by the Spirit before you sin, if you look at, break that one second down into its components, just like when, when Peter's out there walking on the water, and as long as he's looking at Jesus, he's okay. But the second he quit walking by Jesus, he took his eye off of Jesus, what happens? Then he, the consequence is that he falls, he, which is comparable to sin. As long as we're consciously dependent on the Holy Spirit, through the word, then as soon as we take our eyes off of him, boom, we go down into the sin nature. 
So the command is walk by means of the Spirit, and it will be impossible to fulfill the lust of the flesh. For, now he's going to explain it, the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. So he sets this thing up in, 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 in the Scripture. It's the Spirit or the flesh, the flesh or the Spirit. There's this war going on between your sin nature and this new nature that you have that is being uh, energized, nourished, and strengthened by the Holy Spirit. So the flesh is fighting against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. They're contrary. They're completely opposed to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now, doesn't that phrase sound familiar? It's right out of Romans 7 where Paul's talking about his life before he understood the role of the Spirit, and he says, I don't do the things I want to do, and I'm doing the things I really don't want to do. So there's that concept when we're walking by the, by the uh, sin nature. We don't do the things that we wish, that we desire to do as a new creature in Christ. And then he says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. What he means by that is under the law, there was no provision for living or for obeying or being able to obey the law. So leading by the Spirit. Now, the word here for leading by the Spirit is the idea of laying out a path. Now, if you've ever been out in the woods, out where there's no path, and you're sort of laying out a path, then uh, you may go along and, or if you're just out in your backyard and you're building your garden and you're putting some flagstone down for a walk, uh, place to step as you walk through your garden, you lay down a path. It goes in front of you step by step. You put a, a stepping stone here, a stepping stone there, a stepping stone there. The Holy Spirit lays out an objective path for us with stepping stones. The name for that objective path is the Word of God. That's where we see the path charted is in the Word of God. That's why we have to know the Word of God. So Paul says, if you are led by the Spirit, and we are, you're not under the law. Now, what are the ways that you can tell who's running your life? The way you can tell is by the product of your life. And so there's a contrast set up here. First, the works of the flesh, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, uh, which is really pharmacia, the use of uh, mind-altering substances, uh, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. In contrast to that, we have the production of the Spirit. And the first thing mentioned by the production of the Spirit is love. And you ought to circle the word love in verse 22 and take it and draw a line up to verse 14 and circle the word love your neighbor up in verse 14, and then draw another line and circle the word love in verse 13. So the next time you read this, you will see how that's, that all connects together. Verse 22 is now gets back to the topic at hand, which is to learn how to love your neighbor as yourself. It's done from the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the result of walking by the Spirit. And it produces love and I think that the rest of these uh, manifestations here are different facets of love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there are no law. 
And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What does that remind you of now that we've gone through Romans 6 a lot? That's the baptism by the Holy Spirit. When we're saved at that instant, we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so the old man is crucified. That power is broken. But the sin nature is still there. The old man, everything we were before we were saved is gone. And so now Paul says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. We live by the Spirit, regeneration. If we're going to be alive, have new life from the Spirit, what should we do? You should walk by means of the Spirit. And there it's a different word for walk than the word that we had earlier. The word before was peripateo, which just means to go step by step. Uh, The word here has the idea of following in ranks or following in a path that's laid out. So we walk down that path laid out by the Spirit. It's similar to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge Him, that's studying the Word, and He directs your paths. How? Through the Word. So what did, why, why did I go here? Because... We see, first of all, that as a believer, you're either living your life on the basis of the sin nature or you're living your life on the, by walking by the Spirit. It's one or the other. It's not a little bit of both. You don't have one foot that's kind of being spiritual and at the same time one foot that's kind of being carnal. There are a lot of people that teach that, but you can't make that work with Galatians chapter 5. That's just human viewpoint theology. So it's one or the other. Now, that's very clear from Galatians 5. So when we get into Romans 8, so let's turn back to Romans 8. We get into Romans 8, we realize that whatever Paul is saying in Romans 8, he's not contradicting what he said in Galatians 5. So he has to be talking about the same kind of thing but from a slightly different perspective. So when he's talking here about carnally minded or uh, that is being empowered by the sin nature of the flesh versus being spiritually minded, he's talking about walking by the flesh or walking by the spirit. He's talking about a believer. He's not talking about an unbeliever. But there are a lot of people, especially if they come out of a... Uh, of a more reformed or Calvinistic background, and or if they're from more of an extreme Arminian background, like uh, uh, Wesley and Methodism, a lot of holiness and charismatic theology. Um, if you're on the Calvinistic side, a lot of the reformed theology, lordship, salvation. What happens there is they they interpret Romans eight. As, as the conflict here related to a, an unbeliever. But that's because they don't understand the real dynamics of the spiritual life or the role of the Holy Spirit. So, as we said last time, Romans 8.1 is really talking about the fact that there's no condemnation now to those who are in Christ Jesus, but it's not just positional, which is where many of us have taught this in the past because we haven't uh, appropriately understood the significance of that relative clause. That relative clause is left out of most modern translations. It's in the King James and New King James, but it 
further defines those in Christ Jesus as those who are not walking according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So what Paul tells us in Romans 8.1 is he's not just talking about believers who are positionally in Christ. That's what happens when you drop that last part off. He's not just talking about, great, we are in a position of no condemnation. He's talking about no condemnation to those who are in Christ walking according to the Spirit. He's not talking about those who are in Christ who are walking not walking who are walking according to the flesh. See, they're under condemnation, not eternal condemnation as I pointed out, but divine discipline. Because the word condemnation as I've been emphasizing the last two or three weeks and it's very important to understand that has its idea not eternal condemnation, this word katakrima used here but the idea of just of punishment, the consequences of sin, punishment. And so this isn't talking about the fact that, oh, this is great because I'm saved and in Christ there's no condemnation. Yeah, that is true, but that's not what he's saying here because he's not talking about salvation here or getting justified. That was back in chapters 3 and 4. What he's talking about here is those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh. He's talking about no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus who are walking according to the Spirit. You've got to get the whole, both phrases in there, not just one phrase in there. Don't just stop it at in Christ, but he's talking about a group that are in Christ who are also walking according to the Holy Spirit. That's the focal point here, because those who are walking according to the Holy Spirit are the ones who are growing, the ones who are being forgiven, the ones who are using 1 John 1, 9 as an opportunity to get back in fellowship, to abide in Christ and keep pursuing uh, spiritual growth. He's talking about how to be a victorious, winning believer, and he's not focusing on those who are going through either condemnation, or going through condemnation because they're, they're just living according to the sin nature as believers and living just like, like unbelievers. And so that once again, this was just a slide dealing with the meaning of katakrima. The low nida dictionary focuses it on the idea of judging someone as guilty and subject to punishment. That's the idea. So don't read into it eternal punishment in hell. It's talking about someone who's guilty of disobedience to God and undergoing punishment. And that can be eternal or it can be temporal. But Romans 6, 7, and 8, if you're coming in in the middle of the TV show at 7.30, you're going to think he's talking about, you're going to read into this the wrong thing and think he's talking about being just being positionally in Christ and you've ripped it out of the context of Romans 6 and 7. So as I point out in the middle sentence in this slide, emphasis is not on eternal punishment but on the consequences of sin in in this life. Okay, so we looked at the sin nature last time. The lust patterns drives everything. This is the lust of the flesh. It can produce either relative good you know, I'm better than you are. Sometimes you're better than I am. But when we compare ourselves to the ultimate reference point of God's righteousness, I'm not okay and neither are you. So we, produce, we do produce relative good. But because it comes out of a corrupt 
nature, it has no eternal or spiritual consequences. And then we have personal sins, which are those things that we normally think of as sin, whether they're mental attitude sins of arrogance, uh, mental attitude lusts for any number of things, uh, whether it's sins of the tongue, gossip, slander, things like that, or overt sins. Then this leads us to various uh, desire trends, either towards uh, asceticism, which is the idea that by giving things up, by doing anything, somehow it really gets God to bless me. God has, according to Ephesians 1.3, God has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. He just hasn't get distributed it all yet, but he's already blessed us, so we don't do anything to get blessing. It's sort of like if you have a, if you have a baby, and that baby starts to grow up, and you're just a proud daddy, and you've got a, a wonderful son, and uh, you're, you, you've been blessed materially, and so you give the keys to a brand-new Lamborghini to your son at six. It's his. Put his name on the title deed for that car. But you're not going to give him the keys until he's old enough to demonstrate some responsibility and capacity for ownership so he doesn't kill himself or anybody else by driving that vehicle. That's how God distributes our... They're already ours. That package has been given to us at the instant of salvation, but only as we grow and develop maturity and capacity does he distribute those blessings so we don't uh, self-destruct as we grow and mature as believers. So we either move towards asceticism, this idea that I'm really oppressing God, I'm going to do all these things and he's going to bless me, or... We go in the opposite direction, and we're licentious, lascivious, antinomian. We just say, you know, Jesus died for my sins. I just confess it, move on, or I'm going to, you know, in the, using the word rebound for confession, I'm just going to prebound before I sin, and God's grace will cover it. We've all done that. Don't act like you, don't sit there with some smug look on your face like you don't know anybody who ever did that. I won't name any names. So at salvation, we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is being in Christ. That is uh, what is going to be talked about when Paul gets down into into verses uh, uh, 9, 10, and 11. We're going to be talking about that, that positional truth. But then we also have another realm of our temporal realities. Usually I talk about this as being filled by means of the Spirit, but it's also described in these these verses as being uh, uh, in the Spirit as opposed to in the flesh. So when we sin, we're out there in the darkness, in the sin nature, in the flesh, and we have to confess our sin to get back in the spirit and walking in the light as he is in the light. But then when we sin, we go out. So now that I've sort of laid that framework, let's talk about this a little bit. Paul makes his first statement, verse 1, that there's no punishment to those in Christ who are walking according to the spirit. That whole phrase has to be there. For, he says in verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And as I pointed out the last uh, couple of weeks, what this does is it takes us to, reminds us of what Paul said in Romans chapter 6, 
we fo- I focused on this last night that it, this is the first time Paul really starts using the word uh, spirit or n- Greek word pneuma in this passage. Uses it thirteen times. Once in Romans uh, six six uh, seven six, and now in Romans twelve times in Romans uh, Romans eight, and it's always contrasted with sin and the flesh. Now they didn't have this dynamic in the Old Testament. Old Testament believers didn't have this option. How do we know that? Because they didn't have the baptism by the Holy Spirit. They couldn't be identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So there's no deliverance from the tyranny of the sin nature in the Old Testament. So they, 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 they are born with three strikes against them, and they get saved, but they still have that slavery with the sin nature to deal with. So all through this section, we have this contrast between flesh and spirit, life and death. It's all about life. How do we really experience that full life Jesus has for us? Okay, I'm going to skip. A, I had a lot of trouble with my computer today, so I was struggling to get slides done. Romans 6.16 is where we see that, that whole principle of deliverance from the mastery or the tyranny of the slave master of the sin nature. Romans 6.16, do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? So he's talking to believers, and he said, you as a Christian have a choice, have a thousand choices, maybe 10,000 choices every day to either let sin master you or to let the Holy Spirit be the master. It's your choice. Before you were saved, you didn't have that choice. It was all from the sin nature. But now you have a choice. So if you're messing up in your spiritual life, you only have one person to blame. It's not God. So you make that choice every day. Are you going to let sin be the master or not? Romans 6.18, Paul said, having been set free from sin. See, we're set free from the tyranny of the sin nature, but we still have that corruption. We can still walk according to the sin nature. Having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Positionally, we're slaves of righteousness, but we have to live that way. That's the left circle. Positionally, we're a slave of righteousness. We are sons of light, but moment by moment, we have to choose whether we're going to walk like a son of light or not. Uh, if you grew up in a family where your father or mother was proud of your family and your family heritage and your family name, if you did certain things, they would say, now, no one in this family does that. Does that mean you weren't a member of the family? No. It's a way of stating what the standard is for behavior in that family. And if you act a certain way, you're not acting like a member of the family, but you're still a member of the family. So positionally, we're slaves of righteousness, but sometimes we act like we're slaves of sin. Romans 6.21, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. Well, these people are already justified. They have eternal life. He's talking about temporal death as a result of living in the sin, according to the sin nature. So verse 3, for what could the law, for what the law could not do, because the law was externally, couldn't help enable us to obey it, weak as it was through the flesh. This is a great example of the word asthenes, which sometimes means physically weak or sick. 
But in the epistles, it almost always means spiritually unable or spiritually weak or being a spiritual weenie. That's how it's used in James 5 when it says, If there's anyone sick among you, let him call for the elders and have him pray for him and anoint him with oil. It doesn't have anything to do with being physically sick. It's the same word. It means to be a spiritual wimp. And you're wimping out and you're weenie and you're a weenie and you're just a failure by the numbers. And so you need more mature believers to come alongside, encourage you, and pray for you and uh, move forward. It doesn't have anything to do with being sick. It does, uh, otherwise, we translate this for what the law could not do, sick as it was through the flesh. That doesn't even make sense. So the flesh can't obey the law. So the, what the law could not do, God did. God provided by, how did he do it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, if I gave you all a test, this is why I spent all that time back there in Galatians 5, because I, I was establishing what? Why did we go there? To show that when Paul's making these contrasts between flesh and spirit, flesh and spirit, he's talking about believers, and he's talking about the choices you make. Now, what's the context? Y'all have been here all the way through since before 7 o'clock, watching the the whole TV show. You've got the context, and the context is talking about a believer and the spiritual life. It's not talking about how to be justified. So you look at this verse, and you scratch your head, and you say, well, that looks like it's talking about what Jesus did on the cross, and you'd be wrong. Why? Because it doesn't fit the context. It doesn't fit the context at all. This isn't talking about what Jesus did on the cross. It's talking about what he did in laying out the pattern for the spiritual life of the church-age believer. You see, Jesus wasn't, Jesus was a, Jesus' life was really like a hinge in history. He's fulfilling the law in the Old Testament. And the law in the Old Testament was external with no internal enablement. But in order to demonstrate righteousness, Jesus, under the Mosaic law in the age of Israel, has to fulfill the Mosaic law. But on the other hand, he does it because he's filled by the Spirit. He's enabled by God the Holy Spirit, just like you and I are, and he's setting the precedent for the future dispensation of the church age by how he lived. And he is showing by how he lived that there's no, no uh, punishment for sin. He's, he demonstrates that condemnation for sin in the flesh. He's the one who's condemning sin in the flesh because in his flesh he doesn't sin. So God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now that's the same word that's used in Philippians chapter 2 to talk about how Jesus is in the likeness of humanity, that when he came, uh, entered into the world, the whole deal with the kenosis, adding, um, adding to, his hum, uh, to his deity humanity, he, um, uh, he's in the likeness of sinful flesh. But he's not sinful flesh. He just looks like, he looks like you and me. He looks like a normal human being, except he doesn't have a sin nature in his, the cell structure of his body. He hasn't inherited Adam's original sin, and he doesn't have a sin nature. He's, he's, he's not corrupt. 
but he so but he's a full human being but he's in the likeness of, of sinful flesh he's truly human and as an offering for sin but he condemned sin in the flesh by the way he lived why why did he do this verse 4 in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us what's the requirement of the law We covered this just a few minutes ago. Did you all take a nap? Go watch a commercial? Remember, we saw that in, I'm going to turn back to it, in Galatians chapter 5. Right there. Paul, Paul told us in Galatians chapter 5, uh, he said, um, I can't read. Galatians 5 when he first introduced the concept of uh, loving your neighbor as yourself, he said, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, keep that in mind. So what is what is 8.4 says? In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What's that? Love. Love is the ultimate. So it assumes and summarizes all of the other virtues of spiritual growth and maturity and the fruit of the Spirit uh, under that one thing. So he says, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, comma, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, see, this is another one of those examples. In fact, there's two in this chapter where commas are very important. But in Greek, there weren't any commas in the original Greek. They didn't put in commas or periods. In fact, they didn't even put spaces between the words. They were just like one long, run-on uh, sentence. And you had to figure out by grammar and your knowledge of the language. You think, boy, that would be hard to read. And not, no, it wouldn't. It's not hard to read. Just like, like Hebrew reading backwards after you, after you look at it and get used to it. Um, it becomes part of part of your thinking. I remember about the fourth or fifth day of my first year Hebrew class, I took it in summer school, which I think was a mistake because you, you, it just so many little bitty rules you have to memorize the first three or four days that it's just too intense uh, at the beginning. But I remember coming home, driving home the fourth day, and I came to a stop sign. Now, Hebrew reads from right to left, and I kept looking at the word pots on that stop sign. And that's when I knew that I was beginning to get a handle on Hebrew a little bit. Your mind can pick these things up and adjust as you go along. So uh, we put commas in in order to clarify things, and sometimes it's a little ambiguous in the original language and you're not sure which it is, that's where theology comes in to help. See, if you, I put the two examples at the bottom. You can either translate us who do not walk, but if you don't put a comma there, then all of us uh, do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that's not true. Now, there are some people who think that, that all of us who are true believers walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And if you're not, if you're not, if you're walking according to the flesh, and maybe you weren't saved, but we have to put that comma in there uh, 
because there are some of us who don't walk according to the Spirit very much, if at all. And then there are others who walk according to the Spirit a lot more. So what Paul is saying is that the requirement of the law, which is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. The requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. But it's not fulfilled in us who don't. And see, that's the same thing he said in Galatians 5. He started off, as I pointed out, he started off emphasizing the fact that we are to love one another. I mean, uh, love our neighbor as ourself, that we're through love to serve one another. And then he goes on to this whole discourse on walking by the Spirit, walking by the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit, what happens? You, it, the Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit in your life, and you'll have g- this genuine love develop in your life as a result of the fruit of the Spirit. And so it's the requirement of the law through love to serve one another, is fulfilled in you by walking by the Spirit. But it's not fulfilled in those who are walking according to the, to the flesh because according to Galatians 5, uh, 18 or 19 following, it's just divisiveness and outbursts of wrath and contentiousness and hatred and selfish ambition and heresy, envy, murders. So those who walk according to the sin nature have all of those sins manifested in their life. Okay, so Romans 8, 4, that Jesus, it ties, 3 and 4 go together. The law couldn't do it. The law said, love your neighbor as yourself. But no one could do it because their sin nature wasn't dead. I mean, the, the authority of their sin nature wasn't broken. So under the law, they couldn't do it. But God sent his son to, to fulfill it. He came to fulfill the law. And he fulfilled it through the power of God in his humanity, through the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't fulfill it through the power of his deity. Remember, there's a firewall between his humanity and his deity. And the only time he ha- is authorized to access his omnipotence or his omnipresence or his omniscience is to demonstrate that he is God. He's never allowed to violate that firewall between his humanity and his deity to solve his problems in his humanity because he's setting a precedent to show that you and I, in our humanity, by walking by the Spirit, can grow spiritually, can obey God, and can have victory over over sin. So in 8.3... The law couldn't do it, but God did, sending his son who's in the likeness. He's in mortal flesh. He's a human being, not in sin, and he condemns sin in the flesh. The idea there is he, he, he punishes sin. Sin's the object of the verb. So he, it's not that he's, he is bearing the condemnation of sin. See, that's how we tend to read it. He is condemning sin by his ability to live without sinning in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And then we get another explanation. For those who are according to the flesh. Now, this is where you get people who come with that preconceived mindset of Reformed theology, 
covenant theology, lordship theology, or even Arminian theology. And at this point, they start talking about believer versus unbeliever because those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But see, believers can be according to the flesh too because they focus on the sin nature. They're ignoring, um, they're ignoring the provisions of walking by God the Holy Spirit. The, a, a, a Christian, a born-again believer can be even worse than an unbeliever because in a lot of cases the unbeliever is trying to get to heaven. He's trying to be moral. But the, but the believer, oh, he's grace-oriented. God will forgive me. I'm going to heaven anyway. Jesus paid for it, so what the heck? And, and they can be a lot worse. And you've never really been betrayed and, and uh, uh, beat up on until you've been betrayed and beat up on by a believer. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit. See, you're either walking according to the flesh and those who are living according to the flesh or walking according to the flesh, the verb's left out there, but that's what's, what, what's implied, they set their minds on things of the flesh. So if you're living according to the flesh, then over time what's going to happen is your priorities and your values are going to be determined by the sin nature, and you're living for temporal glory. But those who are living or walking according to the Spirit, see, he's already... Um, introducing those terms back in verse 5, he said, those who live according to the flesh, that their minds on the things of the flesh, and, and uh, uh, or excuse me, that's, that is in this verse, that's what's implied there. Those who are living according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. The, this is, I think, New American Standard up here on the screen, but the New King James has live in there indicating that that is the key idea. And then... And that's as far as I got in putting that on the slides. And then verse 6 says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So there's a contrast here between the thinking of the person focused on the flesh and the thinking of the person walking by the Spirit. The verb, you have a verb and a noun based on the same word. The verb is phroneo, used in verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That verb, phroneo, governs both of these. You set your, the, the, the one who lives according to the flesh sets their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who uh, live according to the Spirit set their minds. See, it's left out that second time, but it's implied. Set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The word there, the verb there, phroneo, means to think, to judge, to give your thinking to something, to set your mind on something, to be uh, focused in uh, a certain way of thinking. Um, it means to give serious consideration to something, to ponder it, uh, to let your mind dwell on it, to uh, constantly fix your attention upon something. So to be carnally minded, that's the person who's constantly focused on the things that appeal to the sin nature or the flesh. And, and to live that way, so to be carnally minded is death, not eternal death in the lake of fire, but you're going to have a death-like existence in this life because you'll never experience the benefits of the blessing of God in this life. It'll be a death-like existence. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Not eternal life in the sense of life without end, but 
as Jesus said, I did not come like a thief to steal and destroy, but I came to give life and to give it abundantly. Right here and now, we have this abundant, rich, full life because our mind is set on the spirit. But if you're a believer and your mind is set on the flesh, then the result will be catastrophe, divine discipline, judgment for sin, condemnation, all of those things in a miserable life as you're constantly being uh, disciplined by God. Verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. See, that's talking about that positional reality. He's reminding us again, look, you're, positionally, you're not in the flesh anymore. You are in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, first-class condition. So we understand that at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit dwells in every believer. And then he goes on to say, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So again, there's that connection back to justification. So 9 and 10 are talking about our positional realities. And then he's going to draw a conclusion from that in verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he does, he's taken up residence inside of every believer, Uh, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, we already have eternal life, so it can't be talking about eternal life here. It's talking about the experience of the richness of our new life in Christ as a new creature in Christ on the basis of what we're given through the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. So that's our potential. So we're going to come back next week after we've all filled our bottom circles to abundance on Christmas Day, and we'll learn all about what it means to uh, live according to uh, to the Holy Spirit and the leading of the Spirit in the next five verses in 12, uh, 12 through 17. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to reflect upon this wonderful provision we have, that the realities of who we are in Christ and that we're in the Spirit positionally, but we have to learn to walk by the Spirit moment by moment, day by day. Father, we pray that you might keep us conscious of this reality in the midst of all the chaos and all the hectic things that go on, especially during this holiday season, but that we might be reminded and mindful that We're here to be a testimony to you and to relax and focus on our God-given mission to be a witness for Jesus Christ and for the gospel and for the truth of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.